0: Welcome back to episode 27 of the Service Design Podcast. I'm David Morgan.
1: And I'm Stina van Hof.
0: And today we have a guest I'm sure many of you have been waiting to hear on the podcast. He is co-author of the wonderful books, This is Service Design Thinking, and This is Service Design Doing. Besides that, he is co-founder and CEO of More Than Metrics, who put out the journey mapping tools, Maply, among other things. And he's a renowned speaker at international conferences and many, many more accomplishments. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Stigdorn. Hey, thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) Was that a good introduction or do you want to add something?
2: (laughs) That's plenty. No, nothing to add. Thanks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. If we start to sum up everything that you've done, it can become quite a a long list. So uh, we try to keep it to the the biggest things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, welcome. Welcome. Where are you calling from uh, in the world at the moment?
2: So I'm in in our little office in Innsbruck in Austria. That's a tiny little town in the middle of the Alps. It's beautiful, actually, with high mountains around me here. So it's quite scenery where I am.
0: Ah, that's beautiful.
1: Nice. I've been there once and I remember a lot of uh, nice scenery and a lot of nice mountains.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is.
1: Super inspiring environment to start all your uh, service design work from.
2: It is, it is. But funny thing, I actually never work around here. So Innsbruck has an airport, and that's that's an important asset. And we have an internet connection, and that's all we need, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because you're traveling around the world to uh, give courses on uh, service design, but also speak about service design. So where have you been up to lately? Where, to which part of the world have you been?
2: So, uh, lately, two weeks ago, I was in Amsterdam together with my colleagues, uh, Marcus and Adam. Many of you know them as the instigators of the Global Service Jam. And, of course, also uh, authors of our newest book, This is Service and Doing, where we gave our This is Service and Doing executive course. That's actually the course uh, which led to the book later on. So, the course came first before we did the Mm -hmm. book. So, it was Amsterdam, yes. Not that far, but beautiful.
0: Mm. I think uh, speaking of the book, uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about uh, this service design uh, doing. So could you explain a bit about how you got to the point of writing this new book after having the books, this is service design thinking out for many, many years? What was it exactly that brought you to this topic?
2: Yeah. Let's start with the first book with This is Service Design Thinking. When Jacob and I edited this book, it was uh, in 2009 and then published in 2010, there was not much literature out there. And uh, I was teaching service design at that time at a university here in Innsbruck. And it was kind of strange to teach a subject without a textbook on it and uh, we were always and i talked to to other colleagues who were teaching service design at that time and we all did the same thing we were always pointing towards different blogs and websites um, as a reference but it all kept changing all the time and that was the basic idea of this first book to kind of capture the state of service design at that time, the year of 2009, 2010. So we had also different authors there. We were 23 authors in total, and it was kind of a collection of different articles, slightly edited. But when you take a look at it, you actually feel that there are different tone of voices in there and so on.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And it was not a book done by just Jacob and me. So it lacked, of course, consistency. So we always had this in our mind that at some point in the future, we should do another book, but this time with stronger editing, where we really show how to actually do service design because it's not about thinking, it's about doing. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, then, I started uh, giving these executive courses together with Marcus and Adam. And as part of these courses, we develop a script. And a few years ago, we had a script of about 70 pages we use in this course so well that's uh, that's easy that's actually the starting point of of our new book because we have hands-on descriptions of each method and of course it wasn't easy as we thought at that time it took way longer and suddenly became a huge project with more than 300 people involved mm-hmm. but actually we we really wanted to show how to do service design describe The tools and methods, how do you plan for such a process? How do you facilitate? How do you bring it into an organization? And at the end of the process, we realized that we have way too many pages because we had around 800 pages. And that's why we (laughs) cut out actually what we started with, the methods, (laughs) Uh and uh, put them on the website for free and just focused on actually everything connecting the different methods. Because I think we... We have a tendency in service design in the last years, especially how consultants promote service design, which is very much method-focused or tool-focused. It's all about the journey map or co-creative workshop. But actually, what service design is, it's, it's much more. It's about how do you facilitate a process where all these tools and methods play an important role, but how do you actually bring a project how do you develop it further? How do you prototype your ideas? How do you test it? How do you bring it out? Because the idea of a service, service project should be to have impact on the user. And that's something the first book didn't really cover. And that's why we said, let's let's do the second one.
1: And what I like about the second book, it ex- actually is a co-creation uh, project by itself. So you can already see the advantages of co-creation from the book itself, like you have a lot of different perspectives in the book, which is super interesting from all, all over the world. And you also, by doing this, I think you create uh, already like a common ground all over the world that this book is something which brings together a lot of opinion and it is uh, interesting to read, which is actually something we try to do in projects quite often as well. So I think that by itself is uh, already quite an uh, interesting approach to write uh, a book like this.
2: We thought ourselves... Who has the authority to write a book about an approach about service design when there is no clear definition of service design? When it's a quickly evolving field, still it is. And we thought it can't be us. We might mm-hmm. be the editors. We might be the ones who move this project forward, who offer ideas of how you can do it. But then it actually should be the community who decides what is important, what not, and also offer alternative perspective. And that's why we added in the book, these little uh, sidelines where other experts can have comments or tips on it, which are not by us, but to show that there are many different perspectives also within our communities, many different ways to do that. And that's what we wanted to show with that.
1: Yeah. And it's the same like a service design project itself. Also there, you need all the different perspectives and Every project is a totally different project, so it's important to have all the different uh, opinions to see which ones apply to the project you will be doing yourself uh, as a consultant or as an in-house service designer. Absolutely. Very interesting. So actually, this week, uh, we saw on Twitter another announcement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A third book.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is a third physical book. But I, I just said that we actually cut out all the step-by-step method descriptions because we thought that's common ground anyway. That's available everywhere. So we we don't want to waste space of the book with these step-by-step description. We thought it's, it's nice to offer that for free online. These are like 180 A4 pages. And then we got feedback from readers like, hey, that's awesome that you're offering that for free. But honestly... I would love to have that as a printed book because that's what I take to workshops as a kind of to-do list for myself. And we even had one tweet, I can't remember from who it was, who said, hey, awesome that you're offering that. But actually, my printer broke down when I tried to print 180 colorful pages. Could you please (laughs) publish that as a book? And so we asked our publisher, uh, O'Reilly, what they think about it because we wanted to keep the free online resource at the same time. And it's not really in the business model of a publisher to publish a physical book of content, which is available for free online as well. But they said, yes, sure, let's do that. Yeah. I think it's absolutely amazing the, the support we got from O'Reilly in this process and that now you can actually buy a physical copy. Whereas if you go on Amazon or any other book uh, store and read the description of a book, it clearly says in the description, this is exactly the same content that you can also download on this website. Yeah. But people like it and the response we got so far was amazing for that. So yeah. It's not a third book. It's actually the second part of our second book.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, that's uh, great that it really comes from a desire from uh, the, the reading community itself. So do you see this as indeed a tool that, that you can bring to workshops and use while you're there? Or do you see it more as a, as a reference uh, book for that?
2: I think it depends on, on the reader and also on their level, if you start in service, I, first of all, I, I have to say you cannot learn service design out of a book. A book helps, but it's not that you buy a book and you read it and then you know how it works. Right? You need practice for that. You need to learn how to facilitate and basically you need experience and that's something you can't learn off a book. But it helps, of course, beginners who start practicing that as a kind of checklist, to-do list, to go back, to reassure themselves. And for the more skilled people, it helps them as a reference and maybe also to give a little bit more credibility to workshops. Because if you, if you're working with clients who have never done this before, if you bring like physical stuff, it really makes a difference. And it kind of shows that with all the different case studies in there, with all the different brands from, from all over the world in there, It shows that they are not alone in doing that. It shows that actually many are following that path in a quite successful way. And that helps you to bring credibility to your workshop.
1: Mm -hmm. I also think it's interesting that uh, indeed people still want this physical book. And that is something which appears in other services as well. That even though the digital aspect becomes so much more important and can be reachable from everywhere. Still people, for some things, they have a a need for some physical touch points to uh, take to other people or to just put something on the table and be reminded uh, of what you were doing. And I think that's something which is even in our projects often coming back, that's the physical aspect is also a still a very important part of our lives.
2: Absolutely. Actually the sales numbers are proving that point normal books have a pretty high ebook sales number right now but if you take a look at our book the sales numbers of our ebook are really really small compared to the the sales numbers of the physical book so somehow the community prefers to have a physical book to actually as you said have a physical thing they can put on a the table they can show people mm. instead of a simple ebook which which might be actually more practical sometimes but it's, it's a different use case, I would say.
0: Yeah. It makes me curious if that is a statistic that works for all uh, service design books, if it's just the characteristic of service designers who <laughs> prefer physical books, or uh, if it really is the specific book that you put out. Mm-hmm. But we don't know the answer to that, of course. Oh, we should find <laughs> that out. Yeah, Let's I'm ask curious. the others. <laughs> we'll ask the others, indeed. <laughs> It's also uh, what you do is uh, you're working uh, at more than metrics and you work on the tools to support service designers. Can you talk a bit about how that transition went from being a, a practicing service designer to being a more facilitator of service designers?
2: It was a gradual transition, I would say. When we were doing projects, we realized that uh, many organizations struggle at the same moment in a service design process. And that moment was always when you had a co-creative session to, for example, you bring all your research data in and you co-create a journey map together, or you bring in users or frontline staff and you co-create a journey map together you always have these physical journey maps on pen and paper at the wall. And I think in a workshop, again, the tangible aspects of working with pen and paper or post-it notes or any other sticky note brand actually brings something to the workshop that yet cannot be uh, changed to digital. The energy is different always. But the problem was always you see these journey maps at the wall. And how do you, you as an organization or as an agency, then progress that? And we saw two different patterns there. Either you use tools which are highly accessible, so something like PowerPoint or Microsoft Excel, which is still the most used software to do journey mapping in organizations, which are simply not made to do journey mapping, but of course, everybody knows how they work. And that's why... A journey map becomes a living boundary object that people can update, can change, can actually take ownership of. The other pattern we saw is that you got a graphic designer in who uses something like Adobe Illustrator or InDesign to create a really nice-looking journey map. But then we have a problem of accessibility. So the tool itself looks great, and it might include more information. The information might be much clearer but it's simply not accessible because who in an organization can actually change something that a professional did with, with a professional software? So they do not become a living boundary object. They become a static object, and that means they will die. They might be useful within a project, but afterwards they will die. And the information within this journey map will not be useful after a year, two or three years. So we said, we need to change that. And first, we started that um, as part of our own consulting. And we developed our own little software tool for that. And we saw that actually it's working really fine. And then some clients asked, hey, we really like that software, but we actually would also like to use it without you. Can you offer that to us? And that was for us a starting point to offer Smaply as a web-based software. Actually, the beginning of our software startup. And then Mm -hmm. one or two years later, we had this moment when we already had a grown customer base around five years ago in 2014 or something, where people said, we're your client. And at the same time, we're pitching against you for projects. And that doesn't work. And that was for us the moment when we made a clear cut. So we don't do any more service design projects. We focus on developing tools, methods. To help service designers, no matter if you're working in an agency, if you're working in the in-house department, we want to help you to improve your own practice. And that's why we stopped doing service design projects per se. We still do offer some some trainings or strategic help on how to embed service design organization. But when it comes to projects, we always work together with, with agencies all over the world to make that happen. Mm.
0: I imagine that when working on a tool like this throughout the years, you add features, you add functionalities. Do you recall a particular functionality that you added that really gave it a boost in the use of uh, among service designers, that it was clearly something that was missing until then?
2: Yeah. I actually would like to give two examples because service designers are just one part of our users. But they always use it to connect with a wider audience, with an organization. So I give you one example um, that really made a difference for service designers who are working with that, and one example that made a huge impact within organizations. So clearly for service designers, it was uh, the comment mode where you can create an HTML version of your journey map and invite external people. They don't need to have an account, so they can be users, employees, customers, whoever. To comment on the journey map, actually have a real conversation on different topics among each other. And that really helps people in who are doing service design to validate the map, to get feedback on that, to involve different stakeholders within their own organization or within the client organization into their own process, even if you don't have a workshop together. The other example is, is rather what makes a difference within organizations, because A journey map as a physical object, you plot it out. It's often like three, four meters long. This is classic traditional organizations are not used to. So how do you present customer experiences in organization? It's PowerPoint or Excel. So we included uh, an export function to both Excel and PowerPoint, and you can create immediately a presentation out of of your journey map. Whereas one slide is always one step, and you can click through it and tell your story. And that really has a huge impact in traditional organizations, because you're using the language they use in middle and upper management. And it translates seamlessly back and forth. And that that really made a difference there.
1: Mm-hmm. And can you tell something about upcoming features?
2: Yeah, we're constantly working on that, right? And That was also one of these nice things. I'm sorry, I I take a little detour to answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) But that was one of these really nice things about starting actually a software company that we could start this company on the basic principles of service design, and we can try out new things. We can be bold because if, if we fail, it's it's our own company. It's not that bad. So we're trying out a few things and we're constantly developing together with our users. So we invite them for usability tests, of course, but also for prototyping session, for co-creative workshops. Sometimes they come here to our office and, and we work together on new features. So... Some of the feedback we got was that um, our persona editor, we have been working on that for a long time, needed an update. And that's what we've been working on the last month. And this is what we're going to launch quite soon. Some other features are that you can then connect your journey map to live data. So to a Google spreadsheet, for example, which can be filled through any source to reflect live data. So journey map becomes also interesting for management as a monitoring tool. So again, the idea of using a journey map as a living boundary object. Boundary objects should always translate between different disciplines. So a journey map can translate between designers, but then also management, marketing, engineers, IT, accounting, lawyers, and so on. So how do you make it relevant for them is by adding data to it that is relevant to them. And of course, live data helps many different people to put up relevant data for them in time. So that's one of the, the features we, we're we going to launch in the next weeks.
0: Yeah, that sounds very exciting. So speaking of yeah, using service design yourself as a company, does that mean you also have personas uh, that you work with? We do, yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: as a startup, it's a little bit more difficult because... Your customer group is developing so fast and changing a lot. So the one the, the personas we had two years ago are not valid anymore because our customer base changed so quickly. And that's that's a huge difference to traditional and larger organizations, where they have a more established customer base where personas might be valid for a couple of years. I would say for us, they are currently only valid for a couple of months. So we constantly have to redo it if we take a look at our our portfolio of our users i see two major distinctions between them on the one hand it is their skill level so how much do they actually know about service design or however they call it within their organizations i don't uh, care that much about which label they put on some call it experience design or design thinking we just call it service design in the beginning in the early years we had only experts so people from the community who knew exactly how this works and that was an interesting shift in in the last two years that we now have many people who are actually starting their service design journey with our software so they they google for journey mapping for example they often start with a very specific tool then they stumble over our software And they say, okay, there's a software where I sign up for that. And they want to learn how to do journey mapping, so how to use this tool with our software. So we needed to tailor for that. And based on this persona, we then added, of course, different learning materials for that. Like you can download templates and we offer videos and step-by-step descriptions and cheat sheets and so on. The other dimension is the decision-making power they have within their own organization. So are they external? Are they an agency or consultancy? Are they within their organization, but they can't actually take action themselves, so they need to promote their solutions and convince others to do it? Are they right in the middle where they're always struggling with both sides? Or is it top management where you actually have the power to take decisions yourself, and also where you have your own budget where you can just sign up for software like that and for training and build your own team and go for it. So these are the the two dimensions we use to map out our portfolio. And within this portfolio, you can find then different characters like the one I explained in the beginning.
1: Mm -hmm. So how does this uh, tool, Smaply, actually help uh, organizations in becoming more Customer-centric, what does it exactly do to facilitate this?
2: The tool is just a software, right? It's like you're asking, how does Word help you to write a book? Well, it's more difficult without Word, but actually, you still need to do it yourself. And the same thing with, with Smapli. It's a software which helps you to do journey mapping, personas, system maps, and so on. But still, you need to do it yourself. You still need to go out and do research and so on. But what it helps is if you want to bring service design into an organization, many organizations struggle with a very classic push approach where you want to push that approach top to bottom into your organization. So you offer trainings or actually you make your team to go to a training. They have to learn it and they have to practice it. And we saw that failing quite often. Using a software is kind of a sneaky way to bring this way of thinking into your organization without calling it service design. And within our software, deliberately, we're not talking about service design. We stay only on the tool level. So we talk about journey maps, personas, and so on. If now an organization wants to bring service design into their structures, they sometimes use our software as a vehicle. Because if you say we use a new software for journey mapping... People often don't question that because it's a new software. That's what everybody is used to. And if you implement a new software, you get a training for the software. Okay, that's fair enough. And we often start with a rather short training, something like three hours or so. And of course, when you learn how the software works, you need to learn how the tool works. So we also talk about the structure of journey maps and what makes a good journey map versus what makes a bad journey map. So we created um, a little card set, for example, where people can check if this journey map is good. We find that also in our book in chapter three, where we talk about, is this a current state or a future state journey map? Is it based on research or assumptions? So they have this little deck, and they can check any journey map and validate that. Is it A good journey map, is it useful, or is it actually assumption-based current state, so it's actually not useful at all? Maybe as a start to do research, but that's it. So by offering that software, people start using these tools. They get a little bit of knowledge, but they will quickly realize that, well, actually what I'm missing to do journey mapping is data. How do I get to data? So you're triggering a process within an organization where they then start thinking about how do I get to the customer? How do I get customer data here? If that is not a good journey map right now, let's talk about current state journey map representing how customer experience is right now. That always should be based on research data, obviously. If you don't have that, you might need to talk to other people in the organizations who have that data. So we're actually bridging silos there already. They might need to uh, upgrade their own skills. Say, I need to talk to the user. Am I allowed to talk to the user? So suddenly you realize that you are working within certain boundaries and you start stretching your boundaries, maybe questioning also what you as your team should be allowed to. Because frankly, many people who are doing service design are not allowed to talk to users because it's not part of their job profile. That's a horrible situation. But by triggering that, you're notching them in a certain direction. That is a sneaky way to bring this way of thinking into an organization. But in the end, Mm -hmm. somebody needs to do it.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's great to hear that you indeed can use this uh, software to implement more user-centered thinking in an organization. But what I'm curious about is uh, what kind of... okay. So you have on the one hand, you have service designers who are using the software. On the other hand, people inside an organization that are not a designer or not a service designer, but what kind of profiles do they have? What kind of people are using uh, the software now?
2: Everyone. That's really interesting. So... We have people, of course, working in service design, but they have a different use case for that. They use it to standardize journey maps so they can build on the data of different projects within your organization. But because the, the software is really easy to use, also people who have never done it use it to try it out for the first steps, and then maybe get help in in how to improve, how to do it. What's their background? It's very, very diverse. So it can be design. Designers often think, yeah, it's not flexible enough, but actually the standardization is what we need in an organization. Then we have um, people in management who said, oh, that's easy and that's really flexible what I can do here. We have people in engineering who use it, who think beyond the the technical requirements of their products, say, okay, what is actually the use case? How do people use later on this product? And how could be my role? So the idea is really that the tool itself, and if you use the software for that, to bridge all the different disciplines. So I can't nail it down on just one user type, and that's a nice thing about that. It is very, very diverse.
1: Mm Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Maybe a more personal question for you. So you're working now on the software on books. Do you sometimes miss, uh, getting your hands dirty on an actual service design job yourself?
2: Well, I'm doing that on a daily basis because we practice here service design. So actually I'm not missing it. I'm still doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Plus I'm working with so many great organizations all over the world. Where we then partner up with other agencies, where I actually see many more projects now, even though i it's not me personally doing everything anymore, but I see so many now and mm-hmm. and that is really enriching for me. I really, really enjoy that so mm-hmm. i I often get called in at specific moments when a project is stuck um, either by an agency or by an organization, if I could help there maybe, so I see a lot of stuff and that's that's really nice and then I'm getting my hands dirty every day when I'm in the office and working with my team, with our users.
0: And with, with what kind of problems or questions do they come to you? Is it that they want to use service design or are they different problems why they come to you?
2: The main question recently is how do I bring service design into my organization? And this is something which changed, I would say, about two years ago. Until then, we were always trying to sell service design. We were making the the business case for service design that people should invest in it, that's useful to do it, and so on. And that changed now. That's kind of a given factor. And again, some people call it service design or design thinking or experience design. I don't make a big difference between that. And of course, that came through different media coverage of Harvard Business, Magazine tells you, yeah, design thinking is what you should do. It's kind of a given thing now. And now organizations struggle with how do I bring it in? And they struggle with different things. On so the first thing, how do I start with that? How can I scale it within my organization? But then also, if an organization is practicing that and has several hundred people doing that, how do I manage that? How do I manage? Dozens of different service design teams who are working at different parts of the customer experience. How can I ensure because every team is working in an agile manner, which means they might not take the path you predicted last month. They might actually discovered something and went to to a different direction. If you have dozens of teams doing that, working on the same high level customer journey, You need a different way to manage that. You need to think of how can I filter between these different teams to make sure or to identify if teams are working on a similar step in the journey map, on a similar channel, on similar user groups? How can I make sure that they do not contradict each other if I have different teams working on the same topic? So the question of of management is I think that that's one of the next big things we need to cover Mm -hmm. in services because there is no clear answer for that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what we see here in Belgium, but probably also worldwide, is that there is a difference in how organizations try to implement it. Some of them really try uh, to do it from the inside. Like they go for incremental changes on their current service, but other organizations also really look into taking some of their employees into another environment and starting more like a startup outside the company to experiment with design thinking. What is your opinion on those two different ways of implementing it?
2: I would say they are even more than that. But I don't think it's, there's the right way or the wrong way because it always depends on the given structures, on the given hierarchies, the given processes, and the culture within an organization, what works and what doesn't work. So there's no one solution that fits all use cases. Also, service design needs to change and be embedded in the organization, which means you need to change the language of it to make it really click within your given culture. What I always recommend is to start small and start with really small projects where you don't call them service design. We like to call them stealth projects. So they they don't appear on the radar of the organization. Often we suggest to give them very boring names like process optimization of something where everybody agrees on, yes, that is important. Somebody should do that. But I don't want to be that somebody. If you give it a boring name, they don't appear on the radar, which gives you freedom to try things. And then without talking about service design, you actually start practicing it. So you're using the tools and methods. You learn how you need to adapt them. How do you need to change language? How do you need to change templates, processes, and so on? So they actually work within your culture. And once it starts working and you are with these small projects, you are successful. You can start documenting that. So taking videos of how you do it, create journey maps, like a current state journey map before you implemented something and after something, where you actually show a measurable effect. So measure also KPIs that you want to change. And then that can be really hard financial KPIs, like revenue, churn or something. It can be also satisfaction KPIs, employee or customer or user satisfaction, but it can be also... How long does the process take or how complex is it? So whatever you focus on in your project, you measure the baseline before the project and afterwards. Because one question you will always get is, what is the return of investment if we do this service design? And that's a question you can't answer in general. What is the return of investment of management or marketing? Just in general, you can't say that, but you can calculate that per project. And if you know that you will get this question, if you want to implement it and scale it within an organization, you need to have answers for that. But you need to have these answers from within of your own organization. It doesn't help you if you show, well, for Google in this project, it was that. It doesn't help you because organizations are different. And they would tell you, well, yes, but we're not Google. So how does it look like here? And that is an answer you need to provide before you can actually really start communicating it. Once you can that, then, then you can start communicating and build your own community of practice, connected with the outside world, connected with the wider community of service design to keep the skills scaling up within it, and so on.
0: You touched on this topic in the uh, human centered design podcast uh, as well, which I recommend to our listeners to listen to as well. Yeah, and you'd also talked a bit about that you need to change the KPIs of. The people working in the organizations to include things like customer satisfaction, et cetera, that these KPIs of individuals actually support collaborating across silos, et cetera. How do you go about making a change like that, like getting the, the KPIs of the people in a company to actually change?
2: So that is nothing which happens overnight, obviously. And you need already substantial management buy-in to, to tackle that. What I see in organization, if they include any kind of satisfaction KPI, and let's use the bad word of NPS here, if you connect NPS to the incentive of management, it has certain effects. So what you will see then is that management gets interested in how can I change this KPI? Not so much in how can I impact customer experience per se, but how can I change this KPI? And what you will see is that programs get started about driver programs. So what are the drivers behind these metrics? And then these drivers, these are often mathematical ways to calculate which topics influence an NPS score. And if you identify that there is something influencing the NPS score, they will change this. But they will only focus on how can I impact this single KPI. And that then results in stuff like you go to a car renter company. If you rent a car, they will pass over you the, the contract and say, Oh, And by the way, you will get a call tomorrow. They will ask you how satisfied you are. One to five, please answer five. My salary depends on that. That is something you see across all different levels, right? On the frontline, but also on the top management, you see that project arising. How can I hack this KPI instead of how can I have an impact to the customer? So what helps is if you change the KPIs to become cross silo KPIs, if you base your KPIs on the events, on the needs of users instead of having a KPI around management and that's what you need to change. So is it an inside-out perspective or is it an outside-in perspective? If you implement KPIs that cross different silos, like a general one, how easy is it to buy your product and use it for the first time? Suddenly you're connecting many different silos and that forces them to work together, to collaborate. And breaking down silos is one of our key jobs in organizations. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners, they are service designers. And what would you recommend to them to start doing these kind of things? Because this is really a next level service design, I would say. Like even involving management, talking about KPIs is not what most service designers are doing at the moment. What would you say they should start doing more to uh, get to this level
2: learn different languages and with that I, i mean it's always great to learn other languages like french italian and so on but i mean the language of management the language of marketing the different disciplines you're working with understanding their needs understanding what they have to do so tackle that as a service design project yourself doing research. If I work with management, what are actually their problems? What are the needs they have? What do they struggle with? Then ask yourself, how can I help them to overcome their problems? And that often means you need to be able to slip into their shoes to empathize with them, which also means you need to learn their language. So it's a question I often get from students studying service designers. I always recommend to learn other languages and those who are really successful are often the ones who can bridge between different disciplines different languages Mm -hmm.
0: i think uh, one thing in a way we're in luck here in belgium that there is no service design school there's no course to actually learn service design so everybody who comes to work here comes from a different background (laughs) and I notice indeed, that at the start, we had more people coming from design backgrounds. But now we are finding more people joining us with a more business-oriented background. And I indeed see that's really valuable, getting those languages together. So I think that's a very good advice.
2: And I think that's also something which changed over time. If I remember teaching service design, like 10 years ago, I was invited to teach at a at a design school. And besides talking about the obvious tools and methods, I also put in some very basic management stuff of like cost and revenues and so on. And the students just looked at me like, what the heck? Why are you telling me that this is so boring? But then if you actually do projects, you realize that is part of it. You can't design a service without thinking and understanding about the business uh, model behind that. So you need to understand if I implement that, how much that is cost and will it pay off? That is, for me, one of the basic languages we need in our team. That doesn't mean that everybody needs to be an expert on it. But in a team, you need to have at least a basic level of that language.
1: You're talking about uh, teams. We are a service design agency. Uh, We work for big organizations. What we at the moment try to do is we make a team with some of our experts, some of their experts, and then we we join together. But questions we often get is like, should we move service design more in-house and make sure that we have a team inside our organization? Or should we keep on using uh, consultants that uh, advise us from the outside? Do you have uh, some experience with that and uh, could you answer that question for them? I know it will probably not be one or the other, but... uh...
2: If I have to choose between the two, it's definitely the first one. It's going in-house. What many agencies are afraid of if they build up competence quickly in an organization is that they actually put themselves out of job, but that won't happen. Um, If you build up competence within your own organization, you always need this outside perspective. There's always projects where you need help from outside. So if you have a skilled in-house team working with an agency, they share the same language, the language of service design. They can work together much more efficiently. And actually, as an agency, you can focus on the stuff, which is really cool which is also more fun. So I would always say, yes, include it in-house as much as possible, but there are always projects where you need help from outside, where you need agencies. And what we see in the market now is that more and more design agencies start to specialize, specialize on specific industries, for example, like tourism, banking, financial services, health services, and so on but also focusing on becoming a translator to certain disciplines like service design and law, for example, which is great. So we, we see a more fragmentation and differentiation, but also specialization there. And I think that's, that's something really valuable for us as a community as a whole.
1: If we talk about uh, bringing service design in house, there's of course also different ways of doing that. Some companies are really uh, hiring service designers, others are more making sure that the skills are like uh, divided into small bits and pieces and that people who are already working and have different roles will cover those different skills. How do you look towards that?
2: Again, it depends on the organization you're working on. The most Funny thing about large organization is that nobody has a clue what's going on in other parts of that organization because they are so big, they just don't know it. And sometimes I work with teams. I said, well, we, we want to establish a service design team here. Who do we need to hire? And the first thing we actually do then is, well, before we hire new people, let's do an inventory of who's actually practicing that already in your organization and see maybe who can we connect here. And then think about how can we create a community of practice within your organization of all the people who are already doing it. And then you can take a more strategic decision of how do you want to position that within your organization? Do you actually want to create one team or should it be a diverse team across different parts of the organization and so on? Mm-hmm. If you go to, to hire people, look for diversity. So people with a diverse background and not all like-minded designers coming from a design school, even worse from the same design school, but rather look for diversity in your team, have different backgrounds. Make sure they all speak a common language. So let them go through some common training to make sure that they all speak the same language. But having people from different backgrounds is what really, really makes a difference.
0: So one uh, theme that has been recurring in uh, different episodes of this podcast is uh, the differences around the world in service design. You have a a unique perspective of being involved in projects in different parts of the world. Is there anything that you've noticed that's different with, with regards to service design in different parts of the world or things that are universal perhaps? Well, I think it's always a question of personality.
2: Are you a splitter or a lumper? So are you someone who looks for differences between that or are you someone who rather looks for commonality between that? And I'm clearly, I'm a lumper, so I always look for which aspects do we actually have in common, where do we share, and how can we build on that, whereas others want to have clear definitions and clear distinctions. So if I take a look at what we have in common, it's actually much wider than just service design because we have so much in common with anybody working in agile or lean, all the big buzzwords out there, because we all work in iterations. We all believe in involving users. We all believe in experiments. And instead of pre-planning a whole project, start with small steps. And I think that's common ground. Also beyond service design, but again, with different terminology and maybe with different tools and methods. If we take a look at um, geography, the wording might be different. In, In North America, it's often rather called experience design or design thinking, whereas in Europe, it's more called design thinking and service design. So the language is definitely a thing there. Probably also because we have a different understanding of the word experience than than others have.
0: Mm. And are some countries more mature in service yeah. design than others?
2: I mean, obviously, Europe and North America is, is pretty far. What I always think is really interesting, when you talk with anybody from Australia, they will always tell you we're at the end of the world and nothing is going on here. But actually, they are kick-ass. They really are top-notch in service design, I would say. But if you talk to them, they're always very humble and say, yeah, well, we're at the end of the world and we lack so much behind. No, you don't. i just tell you that right now.
0: (laughs) Um, So what's coming up for you? Are there any conferences where people will be able to see you? Are there any courses they can follow?
2: Yeah, so normally the fall is always the big conference season with really great conferences coming up, like the Service Design Global Conference or Service Design Network design thinking conference in Amsterdam or the service experience camp in Berlin, service design days and so on and so forth. But actually for personal reason, I will skip all of that this year because in October uh, we are expecting our little daughter. And that's why I skip all conferences and <laughs> yes. have my own project right here.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, that, is, uh, that is wonderful.
2: But what's coming up then is, um, of course, we We will have another edition of our, uh, this is so I'm doing executive course. Then late November, I'm speaking at a conference in Brazil, in Rio. I'm really looking forward to that. And probably around the conference, we're going to organize some workshops with agencies there as well. So if you're, if you're from South America, yeah, join us there. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Okay. Great. great. Uh, And if people want to find you uh, online, where would you send them?
2: So, Twitter is always good. It's uh, Mr. Stickdon on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or just on our website, smaply.com, and just send us
0: an email. All right. Well, thank you for a very enlightening and uh, interesting conversation. I wish you the uh, best of luck with, uh, with your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Looking forward to it.
1: Yes,
0: <laughs> the best project it is, eh? Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> cool.
1: Thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks so
2: much
0: for having me.
1: Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: bye The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org and for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight by Hydrogen Sea featuring I Will I Swear. Until next time.